Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew here with Stephen. Welcome to another episode. And uh, we're on a roll, two episodes in a week. I think we're, we're finally making some progress here. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and uh, excited about the conversation tonight and uh, coming to you from, from Atlanta and Athens, Georgia. And uh, Stephen, we're going to talk about the Bible. I think it's a, a, a nice, simple, low-pressure, you know, subject, not really a big deal, just kind of a, a peripheral issue. Yeah, this is, this is like a 15-minute episode. It's a short one. Yeah, just a quick yeah. little quick little thing. <laughs> um, no, we've wanted to talk about the Bible, and actually in, in we've had so many conversations, not only over the years, but even recently around this subject and how best to, to talk about it. Um, and so we want to explore the Bible, what it's for. We're going to talk about what how we apply it. We're going to talk about words like inerrant, authoritative, infallible. We're going to talk about revelation, truth, and ultimately formation. Um, and before we get into anything, I just want to say that, you know, in calling this conversation the, or this the, this medium, the laity podcast, um, just a reminder that everything we're trying, we're doing here is just, it, it ultimately is about formation. I mean, it's ultimately about how we actually show up in the world as a people, as individuals. And uh, I think that's just important to keep in mind, even in the, you know, the most, ex- when you're in the throes of some deconstruction and maybe rethinking um, some, some things that you've thought, you know, in a particular way, or for us, you know, some pivots we've made, or just bringing in new authors or ideas that ultimately that the, the end game is becoming formed into a, a, a more Christ-like people and individual and um, I think talking about the Bible to start off is is a good place is a good place to start because of I think one the Bible was you know at the center of so much of of both of our kind of upbringing uh, and and was super a helpful an incredibly helpful tool and also set a foundation for our faith I think that that right. we, a, a lot of which we still hold on to very strongly today. Um, Stephen, why do you think it makes sense? You know, why, why are we talking about the Bible now, even three episodes in? I mean, wh- why do you think, um, w- what makes this subject relevant, and why do you think it, it makes sense to start here? I think the Bible, um, for a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's the, it's the entryway into the faith, but then... Once people have been there a while, I've seen fairly often it becomes also the exit point. And so, hmm. you know, they're 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 brought into the faith, you know, reading the Bible and all the stories and everything. But then, uh, you know, th- and th- we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, how the church, our job is to provide a structure, you know, for coming to know God. And that structure, you know, is going to be, in, at least in some sense, how we read the Bible. Um. But then, you know, if if you read enough of it, there are some pretty awful things in it. I mean, they're just they're just some bad stuff in there. Right, right. So it, it gets pretty uncomfortable. Um, and 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 I see a lot of. Uh, I mean, I had a conversation just just last night with a, a very close friend of mine. He he's having this very experience. He's like, man, I, I I'm all about love. I'm all about God. I'm all about love. I love compassion. I want community. And I don't even, I don't know what to do with the Bible. I just don't even know what to do with it anymore. And this is a guy that like, you know, I kind of, we were, I sort of mentored him, I guess, early on. We've just become really good friends and, uh, over the years and, 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 um, 
you know, we've studied the Bible with people together. And, and, and so he's, he's just, he's just feeling, it's just feeling a lot. It's like, wow, I don't even, what do I do now? Like right. I had, I was a person of faith. I am a person of faith, but the thing that's supposed to inform my faith is what's making me most uncomfortable with my own faith. So this is really just bizarre. And, and so tension. what's the, what, what is the, why do you think that is? So it seems that folks that have been around the Bible, um, and really dug into it, right, over years of time, like really, you know, I want to kind of put it in air quotes, took it seriously, right, like actually read it to apply it and, and do what it says and obey and understand God, um, and rightfully so. There does seem to be maybe this correlation where it's almost like the more time you spend in it and the more interested in and the more formed and kind of uh, sanctified and, and um, transformed you become – there, there are, in my experience, these tensions that almost come to the surface that weren't yeah. there before in the text, right? Mm-hmm. So like someone that's brand new to it that has, you know, never really experienced the Bible and never really interacted with it diligently over, over years of time, um, you have one perspective that I think is helpful, but then you bring in life experience and the perspective of others and just reading it with fresh eyes. And all of a sudden you're like, some of this is making me kind of un- uncomfortable and I don't know what to, you know, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Is that is that kind of is that your experience? Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it was my personal experience for sure. Um, you know, I remember like, let's see, I was you know, I mean, I got baptized at, at fourteen. I was kind of a late bloomer, you know. It, it took me a while. <laughs> uh, so I wasn't as bad as you. It took you to fifteen. Yeah, I was really. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I I remember. Going, I took my, I took like, a, like a, I had like a missionary, sort of a short stretch as a, as a missionary overseas um, in India, and this is right out of high school, and uh, I, um, I was doing a bunch of different stuff. I was serving some different uh, orphanages and working with the different some nonprofits that were pretty closely associated with the church there. And you know, before the trip, when I'd read, you know, all these things about how, you know, Jesus is the, he's the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I right. mean, you know, yeah, I had some, you know, there were some kind of things in my heart that'd be like, wow, you know, this, the, it would kind of light a fire in me to really want to share my faith with my, you know, my neighbors. Cause like, wow, like they're, if they're not Christians or maybe, I mean, sometimes even people that would, that would, that would profess the faith. I, I, I like you, I think mentioned last time, I often would sort of start with a, with just assuming that they're not me, that, that, yeah, that right. like I'm on a different level, uh, that somehow my, my, my tribe was, was, was the one and theirs wasn't or something. And so having those assumptions in my mind, just the product of my own thinking, um, I would, you know, I'd, I would read these texts though, and, and they wouldn't cause that big a problem for me. Like, Oh yeah. Jesus is the way, the truth and life. You, you sorry. Like that's, that's just tough. That's just the truth. Right. 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 It's just, that's just is what it is. But then, you know, going overseas, uh, and, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm confronted with just immense suffering, suffering unlike anything I'd ever seen in like mm-hmm. my white, you know, privileged suburban childhood. Right. Uh, just unbelievable. And, 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 and then seeing in that context, like people of other religions looking a lot more like the Christ I wanted to follow mm-hmm. than I did. Uh, that so then those verses became really problematic because I was like, well, wait a minute. So you're the only way, but they don't really believe in you or think like I do about you. 
but they look more like you. Yeah. So like, what do you, what do you care about? Like, how, God, who do you, do you want me to have my furniture arranged properly? You know, I have all my, all my, you know, things lined up and my doctrines and everything all set up right. Or, or do you, do you care more about the life? And I, I realize that that's a dualistic question, but it's, it's deliberate. It's for, to make a point. Right. Um, cause that's, that is kind of the tension. It's like, well, geez, how does the life and doctrine weigh out? I mean, you, you know, I'm sure you use the classic example of the airplane, right? The two wings. Definitely. Oh yeah. Um, to can't have one without the other. They're equally as important. Right. But so, I have actually had I had a really similar experience um, after or later in high school. I think getting an idea of get, getting sort of exposed to what other Christian communities that weren't in my tradition or with my background and therefore had different stances on the Bible and what the Bible said and how it worked and um, would still have claimed it to be God's word and inspired, um, but but certainly applied certain passages differently, certainly read things differently than I did, you know, on different doctrinal matters, on the formation, you know, on, on church structure, on liturgy, et cetera. And I remember having this, I, I also grew up suburban, relatively, you know, middle to call it upper middle class background. And so I, I actually ended up spending some time in downtown Philadelphia after reading some uh, accounts of what different Christian communities were doing in the inner city and moving into these super impoverished, crime-ridden areas and and forming intentional communities and um, doing everything that I think people like now is cliche and and like trendy. So like the urban garden thing or, you know, having tutoring uh, sessions for kids in the neighborhood and, and set up a thrift store in their basement. And, and we're doing all of these really powerful good works and not just nice things for poor people, but we're actually genuinely invested in their city and their community. Yeah. Um, but they didn't believe, they didn't read the Bible like I did. Um, and, and they didn't, they certainly didn't, you know, think that they just didn't think the same way I did about, you know, how, how someone enters the faith and, um, you know, who's really a Christian and who's not and what evangelism looks like. And, um, they were just, it, it was just a bit different than my framework. And so in that moment, it's not that the Bible didn't suffice anymore, or therefore I thought that there was, you know, no authority in the Bible or that anyone can interpret however they wanted. It, it's what you point out. There was all of a sudden this stark contrast between, what I understood the scriptures to be saying about who's in and who's out, and again, see our see our last episode on on dualism, um, versus what I actually saw people living. And when I see like better example, in my opinion, at that as an eighteen year old, better examples of like a Christ like kingdom centered person than me, who takes the Bible really seriously and yet feel holds it a bit differently than these others, um, it at the least it, it makes you ask some questions. Um, yeah. and, and at the worst, I think it can cause a bit of a derailing and sort of wait. I don't know where I stand on any of this. Um, you know, which, which is interesting. So what do you think, uh, where, where do you want to go from here? There's so many things we could dive into. Um, what do you, what do you think makes sense as a, as a place to start as we talk about, as we bring in these other perspectives or, or talk about how to read the Bible beyond, um, not beyond, but, but how, how to read the Bible kind of with all of this in mind and without having to push this stuff away, right? Part of what we talked about with Pete Rollins and in the Richard Rohr episode was that as these tensions surface, I don't think the answer is just ignore them and pretend the con- but pretend it's not there. 
Yeah. Or, or you know, when I read something in the Bible that appears to be a contradiction, what I should do is just, you know, go to the library and get every apologetic book I can on why the Scripture never contradicts itself and, you know, either and drill down to make sure that doubt goes away. Like, I, there's got to be a, there's got to be, you know, a, a pivot or sort of some uh, of way to move through these questions and these life experiences without a ignoring and sort of suppressing these questions or, you know, seeming tensions that come up, um, or, or B, you know, admitting that it's there and then just throwing the whole thing out, you know, and just saying, well, you know, I, I'm moving on. That's a good question. I mean, there's, there's a million places we can start. Was that a question? I, I don't know. If it was a sort of, I, I'm going to grant Put a question you mark at the end of that statement and then yeah. answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, Man, so I, I keep thinking about what we were talking about at the last episode, how, you know, oftentimes our introduction to God or the faith, they're, they're, it's, it's given to us, it's mediated to us through a, through a structure. And then as we come to know God or, you know, that structure becomes unstable because that structure isn't God. And so it's not able to contain, I mean, if it is actually leading you to God, it's going to become unstable. Right. And often what happens is then the church, as it starts to wobble, the church starts, well, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not blaming the church. I guess what I'm saying is the church and, and I think just even ourselves, we'll, we'll try to like go around and like, you know, patch up the areas that are starting to get wobbly and kind yeah, of reinforce, you know, put things back in there. Yeah. Let's you know, hold it up tight. Like, so that, so that, you know, the structure that we were given to the, Whatever this is, I think often a common thing for people that are in deconstruction is like they'll 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 sort of want to double down and try to revert back to when they first came into contact, like with what was meaningful for them in faith. Right, like ten years um, ago, or whatever. yeah, because right. there was legitimate good thing. Like whatever, even if the structure you had was off or something, right? Even if like you look back at it and you kind of chuckle at things, there was still it still did something good for you. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, <laughs> who wouldn't rather be there than, you know, in the middle of doubt and uncertainty and just wondering what the meaning of all this stuff is, right? So, but I think that if the church is, if we're going to survive as a church, that we have to have a way that for, like, for people to, um, when they're experiencing that, when, when the structure does start to wobble, we have to have a way to, for, for them to still feel like they belong. Right, right. Like, uh, and because and that 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 I think is is where a lot of the tension comes from is that there, there's you, you just start to feel like you don't fit in you don't belong I can't you know I I can't I can't think like I used to think before and that doesn't mean that everybody who thinks that that is wrong or that was terrible I mean it, no we don't have to get dualistic with it it's just you just can't go back there right um, and that's okay so, uh, where do we go with it I think maybe um, I'm hoping kind of this conversation we can we can. I don't, I don't, I don't want to like, you know, speak too highly of what we're trying to do here, but I would like sort of provide a little bit of a roadmap for how maybe the, how we can make a place where those people can still belong. Right. How, how can the Bible still function uh, as true and as a, as a, a, revel, a revelatory book, as something that is authoritative in our lives um, without, having to basically keep like the, the same sort of uh, maybe uh, you could, maybe uh, you could use the word like sort of a, like a, a, a flat interpretation that maybe we want to, we might've had 
when we first got when we first encountered it. Right. So so let's talk that's helpful. Let's talk about interpretation, but I want to talk about the Bible as authoritative. So part of the critique or the feedback I you know that that might come from even this first 15 minutes of our conversation is okay, I understand that you're ta- we're, we're talking about, you know, some people that might have some doubts or some things they experience in their life that doesn't necessarily sit perfectly with how they understand the Bible, but end of the day the, this perspective would say the Bible is a. We need to believe that the Bible is, you know, is God's word, and it's it is God breathed, and therefore it's authoritative. So, end of the day, the Bible and what we, you know, and reading it and applying it needs to trump our, you know, the doubts, the questions, the uncertainties. Like in other words, mm-hmm. and this, you know, I'm not trying to make a caricature here, but but certainly what you might hear, the language that you might hear is, we just need to read the Bible and do what it says. That there, there needs to be a sort of reading it and obeying it because the Bible is is authoritative, and meaning it's it's God's word for us, and it's and, and therefore it and because it is God's word and it is inspired and it is God breathed, it has an authority that we need to essentially you know that 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 should be again trumping and and uh, taking priority over these other things. So, what is problematic about? And we'll go on both sides of the on the critique, right? But but what is? Do you think that language is problematic? This idea of, well, I, I just read, you know, I just read the Bible and do what it says. And pause on that question because I'm going to come back to it. Quickly, want to just add a note that for me, um, you know, my again growing up, like part of my understanding, we took the like we were really committed to the scriptures. Like there was yeah. a serious commitment, not yeah. only to reading it every day. So my upbringing, like me personally and coming to faith and, and my first number of years as a Christian, um, the way exactly the way that that looked was like reading the Bible every single day, praying about it, meditating about it, listening to scriptures from the, from the Bible. I mean, we were a Bible centered church. People would ask me like, what, you know, what's your background or what do you believe? And what's your, and I'd say, well, we're non-denominational. We just read the Bible and do what it says. Like that's, we, yeah. re, we read the Bible. Yeah. We love the Bible. Um, what's, is that problematic? What, and, or why some, some would say, and I think we would probably say that, that, that similar to Richard in our last episode, it's like, okay, you, that's a decent place to start, but it's not quite adequate when things get a bit yeah. more complex. Uh, I like how you said at the end, cause my answer is yes and no. Uh, and I'll, I guess I'll begin with the, well, we, we can begin with, with the, with, with the yes, we'll go Richard Rohr on this one. So. I, I, I mean, yeah, like the, the, the truth of the Bible, if you're not living it out, you're not going to experience the truth of it. Right. right? Like, like if, you don't, if you're not actually living out, you know, if, or trying to live out the Beatitudes or, I mean, the, you know, the teaching of Jesus, you're not, you're not going to, to come to the realization that Paul did when he said that, like, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength and how God is, you know, frustrating the wisdom of the wise with the foolishness of the cross. Like, that, that type of understanding and knowledge, so to speak, only comes from actually engaging in it, like, right. like living it, leading it, like, you know, deciding to live your life by it. So to one extent, if you're not living it out, you're not really ex- experiencing the truth of it. Where I do see uh, the potential for problem, though, is that when the Bible, when the way we come to the Bible is just that flat. Um, you know, the, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, you know, or, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, we just read it and do what it says is I, I think, I think we're failing to see 
how our our lens and the questions we bring to the Bible affect the types of conclusions and the types of answers we can get from it. Mm. And so then what, what, why is that? Why is that, you know, a, a problem? And I don't, you know, it's not wrong. People who think like that aren't, I, I, what, what I, I guess what I'm saying is where that can be, where we can experience trouble with it is that we then, we then run the risk of confusing or misunderstanding, thinking that our interpretation of the text, which is largely going to be influenced by some cultural things and the questions that we bring to the Bible, um, we confuse our interpretation for the text itself. And so then what we end up meaning is like, yeah, I, you know, I just read the Bible and do what it says. We, we then tend to think that our interpretation is basically the truth of the scripture. Um, yeah. In other words, that the, the script, when we say, yeah, the Bible's inspired and I do what it says, it, it also can, it can imply also that, and we would never say this, almost as if our, it assumes that our understanding of the text and our interpretation of this text is is also inspired, that it's perfectly yeah. aligned. Exactly. Um, so so it, it doesn't necessarily acknowledge that we all bring something to the table, mm-hmm. right? We, we bring our, and I don't just mean, again, like trying to resist this, you know, assuming we're talking about like a postmodern sort of desire, you know, itch, what our itching ears want to hear. And kind of, no, I'm talking like, we we bring the time we live in, our culture, our our history of interpretation, like who taught us and who taught that person and who taught that person and where were they based? Yeah. Uh, th- because this actually shows up, like we all show up in a time and a place and those who have interpreted the Bible and those who received the revelation of scripture also showed up in a time and a place. Yeah. And so what that means is that, that, that there's that inherently there's a human element to it. And in my mind, and I think maybe we can, maybe we can segue a bit into, into Peter Enns, who's an author we want to talk about a bit in my mind. I think the mind of others, that humanity or that, um, uh, that showing up in time and place in history does not take away from, from the divinity of script, the, the, the revelation of scripture as it was written, but also doesn't take away from our ability to apply it, to interpret it and, and, and to apply it today. Right, so what we're saying is not like, well, because we're, you know, we're we're not necessarily inspired, and our interpretation is inspired, and we're we have culture and perspective, so we can't, mm-hmm. you know, we can't read and apply the Bible. No, actually, the the Bible showed up in a time and a place. These words are written in a time and a place in history with perspectives and subjectivity and biases and inter and understandings of the world and and cultural. Uh, values just as much, you know, that, that showed up in the authorship of the scripture as much as it did, it does with us today. And so right. and, to, it, and it wasn't ahead. a problem. And, that, then, right? and that's not problematic. Yeah. So, so Peter, let's introduce Peter Enns. Can we, unless you want to, unless you want to talk about something else. No, let's do it. So Peter Enns is in the, uh, <coughs> in sort of our order of introducing authors, um, Peter Enns is a professor. I don't even know where he teaches. I should probably know off the top of my head. I think he's at Eastern University now, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, Eastern. So that's, in, yeah, 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 that's outside of Philadelphia. In fact, he lives in my hometown, I think, in Lansdale, um, Pennsylvania. But yeah, so so Peter Enns is a trained theologian, professor, sc- Old and New Testament scholar, um, oh, we got to put a plug in. He also has an awesome podcast yeah, called really good. that's called The Bible for Normal People, 
and uh, it, it's great. Uh, he's also written a number of books that are fantastic, namely, and I think the one that we're going to quote quite a bit here is um, Inspiration and Incarnation. Uh, he actually just released, I think, like the 10 year anniversary edition or some newer mm-hmm. version of it, either in the last couple of years. I, I, I actually just read that a month or two ago. Um, I think you did too. And, uh, but, but a number of other books too, I think about um, The Bible Tells Me So is a book of his that I read. The Sin uh, of Certainty, too. Yeah. The Sin of Certainty is another one. We'll put links to all of this. Um, but, Stephen, I'm going to let you introduce this concept. But P- Peter has the, uses this, um, kind of spectrum and understand he, he, he doesn't really set it up as a dichotomy, but he talks about reading, he talks about understanding scripture as sort of a flat, you know, a flat, what we'll call a flat reading of scripture. Um, as we kind of have been describing sort of that, what can be problematic of re- this idea of, I just, I just not, not accepting that we bring subjectivity and bias and the and culture and context to the scriptures and a flat reading of, of of scripture and a flat reading of the Bible as you know the final word on truth or the final authority on truth, and kind of contrast this with this really fascinating analogy um, of incarnation. So he he talks about how you know the the just as God came and became flesh in Jesus, and he took on flesh and bone and showed up in a time and a place in history, so did the Bible. And our understanding mm-hmm. of Jesus and what the incarnation means and, and how then we understand God can also be applied to how we understand the, the scriptures and, and how they are divine, inspired, revelatory, um, and again, yet took on, in a sense, took on flesh and, and came to fruition in history. Stephen, can you explain that better than I just did? Oh, absolutely. That was terrible. So <laughs> let me, <laughs> uh, let me fix awesome. it. So yeah, yeah let me, think, let me, uh, fix, let me just, guys, just ignore the last two minutes. Stephen, actually go ahead. <laughs> um, let's start with the revelation component. So, okay. uh, in and and you know setting up a contrast, which is inherently dualistic thinking, but there's a place for it. Uh, in the flat reading of Scripture, uh, the Bible to, for the Bible to be true is basically is to say that the Bible is a source of information, um, and you know we could say the Bible is a, it's a source of information about God. It is sort of it's the it's the go to kind of one stop shop for everything we need to know about God. And the in, and the information contained in it, the propositions that it makes, the claims that it makes, correspond, for the most part, to reality. So if the Bible says that, you know, there were 15,000 troops or something, or then there were about 15,000 troops, or if the Bible says uh, that, let's see, oh, I don't know, you know, the sun stopped, you know, when— um, you know, during the battle, I think it's in Joshua, or then the well, that's what happened. Or if uh, if if the Bible says that God was angry because the Israelites didn't kill all the men, the women, and the children and the animals, then that's what happened as well. Right. You can see where that'd be sort of problematic. Where if, if the Bible has brought you to Jesus and then you go back and you're reading these things, you're like, wait a minute, what? How? Wow. Um, right. and, so, and pause there again to just sort of hit that a bit harder. We see a Jesus when we and you're reading the scriptures and the gospels and seeing a, you know, Jesus who is on the cross, willing to suffer, willing to be misunderstood, nonviolent, 
ultimately, you know, read the Beatitudes, read the Sermon on the Mount, and then you read some of these decrees from God in the Old Testament, um, there's a ton of tension there. Yeah, there is. And so, you know, in, in, in that framework, then the, the, the Bible, the way that revelation then works is basically revelation is like the, the degree to which, you know, the person who is receiving it was just dictating the right now, the information, right? So like, if I were to, you know, tell you, if I were to kind of dictate, like a physician would dictate, you know, um, they, you, you, I would basically tell you everything I did for a patient and your job as the dictator would be to go and write down everything that I said. Right. Um, because the truth of the Bible is is, is contained in, in in the information that it provides. So there, I think the Bible. I don't think that's entirely wrong. I think there are historical things in the Bible, but I think that misses it. it, it you know, the, it, the the problem with it is that it, it does kind of miss the the depth of what of of truth. Like, not all truth really works like that. Um, right. I think about like you know the truth that you find in in a poem or in in a novel that you know is really you know uh, prophetic or really resonates with you. Or um, there 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 are different ways that um, things can sort of can can function as true. Myths can be true. Uh, you know, I'm not saying the Bible is a myth and it's to be you know hang right, with right, me. Right. Um, you know, I, but I do think it contains some myths, and that's fine. Um, or understanding of love or, or yeah. forgiveness or hope or these things that are huge loaded words. We could describe them and like try to write, you know, but when you read first Corinthians 15, like love is this, 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 that doesn't like sum it all. I'm not saying Paul meant to do this, but it just a list, you know, doesn't pot cannot possibly suffice, right. To, to yeah. fully, th- there's a sort of element of what's true about love that goes beyond what anyone could write on a piece of paper. Yeah. So that that kind of is sort of captures what you're talking about. That that truth right. is truth is not cannot ever just be about information. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what Pete what what Pete offers in this um, this uh, let's say call it sort of the the framework of of you know incarnational analogy as he describes it is he says that you know rather than thinking that the revelation works like dictation. And that the truth is contained in the propositions and the statements. Uh, the revelation of God is always is inherently incarnate, and always has been. I mean, what does that mm. mean? Well, in, in, in incarnate, the doctrine of the incarnation, sort of traditionally, is this idea, like you said, that God is both fully God and fully man, or Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, so. There's there's a paradox, but that paradox has to be kept intact. That paradox is the revelation. Right. So to take, to collapse either one of those is to lose the revelation. Um, and so to take, uh, you know, in this reading, like to, to, to collapse the truth of the Bible or the revelation of the Bible all into the degree to which, you know, each of its statements, you know, correspond to, you know, propositions or correspond to you know, reality uh, is to is to lose some of that incarnation component. So what, what does this look like? Well, it means that um, just like G- when God wanted to reveal himself, he didn't he didn't provide like an almanac or, you know, a series of, 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 of books or attributes systematic or theology, systematic volume stuff. Right. One to ten. Right. 
the, the clear, this is what it means to be a Christian, basically, is to believe that the clearest picture of who God is, who this God that most would claim to be sort of outside of time and, you know, eternal and all that sorts of stuff, uh, is clear, most clearly seen in a finite mm. being that walked the earth for a particular, you know, set of time uh, and and you know, was, was born in a place, in a time, in a culture, limited by that culture in terms of, you know, the language he spoke or the cultural frameworks that he grew up with. Um, uh, but somehow those things aren't detractors. Those things are not like problems. Right. Those things are, de- that's just what it means for God to reveal himself. Whenever God wants to reveal himself, he has to do it where we are. Because right. we're the ones who are, we're the ones to whom he's going to reveal himself. So if he's going to, if there's going to be any revelation, it has to occur where we are. Right. And so, so be, yeah, well, I was going to say, so now this is making me think of this, the, this word inerrancy, right? Because this idea of, of inerrancy or the doctrine of inerrancy is this idea that, the, that there are no errors in the scriptures, right? There, there, it, it is without error. Um, and yet, so I think there's a way, I think Pete talks about this, that there's a way to actually uphold this doctrine of inerrancy. Like, I believe the doctrine, excuse me, that the scriptures are inerrant in that they are exactly how they were meant to be. And yeah. with, you know, God didn't make an error in how these this book was put together, um, despite the fact that there is human what would it, influence, bias, uh, again, culture, time, place, that that's brought that's brought in. So in other words, like in the in the uh, first and second Kings account, which is you know a history of Israel in, in first and second Kings, mm-hmm. written by a particular author or set of authors in a certain period of time, capturing the same events that the the, the authors of first and second Chronicles is capturing. Um, they were written in two different times and places. So one of which, and this is, of course, makes me look dumb, but but I forget which is which. One, and, But you can look it up. I promise I'm not making this up. Um, <laughs> I want to say it's kings. There's one in particular that is written um, before the exile of Israel. Yes, and if you that's think correct. about and if you think about the author writing the history of 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 Israel while they're in their homeland and they have a temple and they're in this promised land and and sure there's challenges and there's there's war and fighting but ultimately they feel they have God's blessing they've been obeying like things are going well you're going to see your history in a particular way versus if you are in exile under the authority and oppression of another nation where there are other gods or, you know, lowercase g gods from, from you know, and, and idols, and there, there seem to be other powers and authorities that are in charge. Well, when you're writing your history and distributing that to in, in some capacity to your children and their children, and you're trying to write about who your God is and, and, and what kind of people you are, you're going to write it a little bit differently, right? And we actually see this play out. I don't have a list in front of me. I guess I could have, but a list of all the examples of, you know, how God looks in First and Second Kings versus First and Second Chronicles. But actually, it's pretty powerful. Like, there's a history of Israel yeah. that they're writing apparently the same history, but there's some very different accounts of the same yeah. things. There's some very different ways of describing who God is. A really small and not super, I don't think, super significant example is when David takes the census. Um, and I don't have the references in front of me, um, but in one account, 
you know, it, it's God that prompts uh, Daniel to, to take the census. And then the other account, it's, it's the devil that, that he actually sinned and it was Satan who prompted him to take this census. And, um, you know, the implications of that can be parsed out and have been elsewhere, but that's a very different understanding, right? If the Bible is a flat under, you know, telling of history, then God either tempt, either God told David to do this and he was obeying or Satan told David to do it and he was sinning. Those are really mm-hmm. those are really different, right? The, but but the and there's a way. What I think this incarnational analogy, the utilization of this incarnational analogy, would do with that is say, yes, um, these people were writing in a time and a place, and they were providing their understanding, and that 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 is very much still revelatory and not an error. It's inerrant in the sense that God is allowing Himself to be interpreted and understood. Um, in a way that made sense to that people in that time and place. And he's okay with that. And it's in the Bible. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not an error because, you know, I mean, to say it was an error is, 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 is to, in, in, and using this framework to sort of, to hold the Bible to a standard that, that the Bible itself doesn't hold itself to. Um, okay. Let's talk about that. So, and like, you know, the, uh, so, for example, in that in that in that um, the verse you're talking about, it's uh, Chronicles what twenty one, First Chronicles twenty one, and I don't remember exactly where the second where the Samuel version is, but uh, you know the 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 reason why they're different, um, it's it's not the it's not like a game of telephone where like you know it's just somebody down the line missed the missed the the word it's it's that the the books are written to answer different questions so um the book sort of in exile uh is is written which is which is uh samuel's for the, the first and second samuel are written they're part of what's called sort of the deuteronomistic Deuter- 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 history of israel um and it's written near the time i believe where deuteronomy is being written they're in exile Oh, so and, I messed it up. So it's it's Samuel and Kings together are are during exile, and there's the first and second Chronicles that are pre-exile. That's actually post. They're back, post exile. So they're back in their land, but things oh, don't post exile. Right. So I totally yeah. just led everyone astray. Okay, cool. So it's okay. clearly you, we're it's the laity <laughs> podcast, man. Um, anyway, so so to be clear, Samuel Kings, which is one kind of giant account, right? That is during exile during the exilic period versus first and second Chronicles, which is written post-exile. They're back in the land all is well. Well, they're back in the land, but not all is not well. Not all is and well. That's why it's written. So because the, in the, you know, they're in it, when they're in exile, they look back and they're like, well, you know, why, are we, how, how did we get here? I mean, people have been asking these questions forever, right? Like how in the world did my life get to be so t- horrible? Like how, how is it that we could be God's people? And yet, you know, there's been such violence and, 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 you know, just atrocities. And so they're in exile, wondering these things, trying to wrestle with how they got here. And, and that, well, 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 clearly we disobeyed God. God's angry. We disobeyed him. Hmm. That's why we're here. And so those are kind of the questions that, that are on and the forefront of their mind as this book is getting written. But when they're back, now the question isn't so much, why is God angry? But it's more like, okay, you know, we're, we're back where we're supposed to be, but is this God, are we still his people? Like, is he, I mean, has he abandoned us? What, what happened? Like, are we, hmm. are we ever, it, it, does the covenant still mean anything? And so, um, 
you know, it, it's just the, the book is, is structured differently. And actually, you know, come to think of it, speaking of Pete Enns, there's a really good episode on the, um, the Bible for Normal People on this very topic. Um, mentions the Israel's kings and Deuter- Deuteronomistic history. It's, it was came out a couple of months ago. So I definitely will point people there for the real references from non-laity folks. Um, yeah, but right. for the meantime, this is what you got. <laughs> right. So one thing so, you said just now is that we're essentially, the Bible isn't necessarily claiming to, how did you phrase it? We're kind of putting assumptions on the Bible that it, and making claims for the Bible, the Bible doesn't seem to be claiming for itself. Yeah. Right. So, so that makes me think about this question I posed at the beginning, which is this idea of the, what is the Bible claiming to be and what is its purpose then? Like, so if, if we help, help us understand the sort of different ways of understanding what the Bible is even for, mm-hmm. um, you talked about it not being like this almanac, a flat sort of in, you know, piece of, of information that was flawlessly sort of dropped out of the sky into someone's plate um, and just written down and, di- you know, what was dictated, what, help, help us understand that. So then, then what is it? What is it for? I mean, how, how does this incarnational analogy help us to understand what, what the Bible, you know, what, what it's for and how it's authoritative for us? I, I think the way that the, so you, I think the way that people answer the question and how we would frame it with using this incarnational analogy uh, and, and Pete, I'm sorry if I misspeak for you. You can just call me later. We'll fix it. Um, <laughs> I heard he subscribed it, to the podcast. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, he hasn't paid us anything yet, though, so that's interesting. <laughs> We've been plugging uh, his material. <laughs> so I think the the purpose of it, if it is is that in, in, in showing up in that space and time, God wants to wants to reveal himself create a space for genuine revelation for the purpose of kind of moving the whole thing forward moving it to a new place so it's not it's not um i think this is why you see some of this sort this progression right so think about the sacrificial system it's baked into oh yeah, yeah. the law that. so it's baked into the law, but was it baked into the law because because God for all time forever has desi- desired those things? Well, no, that wasn't even that wasn't even the beliefs of the Jews. I mean, by the time you get to the some of the prophets, I mean, like um, in Isaiah and uh, and Malachi, for example, they're actually critiquing the whole sacrificial system and saying, you know what, God, I God doesn't even like the sacrifices. What He wants is for you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before Him. Mm. That's what He's interested in. So that's not an error. It's not that, that God misspoke, but it's that in the, in the time and place, in the culture, and in that context, God meets those people where they are. Um, uh, and, and, he, and he does it in order to create a covenant for himself. I mean, there's other cultures. This, this is how I, I think the Bible is really created to create a people. Um, so it's, it's, it's supposed to sort of give us a story, a framework for creating a people mm. um, in the world that are supposed to do something. So uh, God, part of this process, he gives them the law, and, and it, these become the boundaries you know, that they set up for themselves and how they know who they are. Um, and this isn't, this isn't bad. I mean, this is sort of the doctrine of election, right? God elected, he chose Israel in this framework, um, but he didn't, he didn't choose them over against the others. He chose them for the sake of the others. So that's, mm. you see that in Genesis where Abraham is, is, is called, but he says that, you know, it's not like, Hey, Abraham, you're my favorite. You're just awesome. You're going to have tons of kids and it just stinks for everybody else. It's, 
it's hey uh, I'm 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 going to use you, but I'm gonna I'm going to use. I'm going to use you to create a family and your family will be the people through whom all the world is blessed. Mm. And so this incarnation, the way, the way it ties in incarnationally is that you know, any revelation of God, uh, it, it happens in flesh and blood. You know, it doesn't mean that God is contained in that entirely. It just means that God has to meet us where we are in order to bring us beyond that. Right. So, um, what what does that mean? I mean, th- this is essentially, I think, what the, what the early church believed, and this is even what Jesus would claim. Like, I remember, um, gosh, there's I had written a couple of verses down. You could see, like, um, Luke twenty four twenty five through twenty seven and um, forty four through forty five. This this is, I believe, the the road to Emmaus passage, and Jesus begins to explain to them how the entire Bible hmm. is basically pointing to him. Um, that doesn't really make sense since it was sort of a flat reading because there's lots of things that, that clearly aren't on the surface level about him, but the whole story, the trajectory, the, those things are all given and intended to move us to an understanding of God that is, that is, that sort of, um, rotates and orbits around what we see in Christ. So the, the, the truest thing we can say about God is what we can see in Christ. Right. Uh, and this is this is another thing. This is another thing that, that is helpful with Pete. He basically would say that, um, you know, that he calls this sort of a Christotelic interpretation of Scripture, meaning um, Christ, Christo, Christ, um, telic, uh coming from telos. It's a Greek word, essentially meaning like the 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 um, the direction, the, the trajectory, where where it's headed. Um, looking, uh, it's it's the think about a telescope. You're looking at something, right? So. Right. Coming to the scripture, looking for looking at looking for the cross, looking at Jesus, and using using the lens of this incarnation and what God is doing in the world to understand the things that come before it. Right. Um, and so that you know, the, yes, that that means that you know, there are places where uh, Pete would say that actually God did not tell and God did not tell um, the Israelites to kill anybody. Uh, it wasn't really what he wanted, and he mm-hmm. didn't seek any. He didn't get any pleasure out of it. Now, why would he say that? Well, he, it's because he's coming to the text with the, with the Christotelic perspective, and Christ being the one who's you know calls us to love our enemies and um, you know turn the other cheek. All these. There's not a whole lot that Christ has to say about killing your enemies. That, right. <laughs> not supposed to do that. So uh, what then is happening is is God is God is um, is the revelation of God is limited. Uh, by the sort of psychological capacities of, of the folks that are there. They've only got ears to hear so much. And right. so in that framework, in a sort of tribal world where, uh, you know, might is right and, and you know, deity is basically measured in like the capacity for violence and, and coercion, then the highest being that one could imagine would be a violent, you know, one who could just basically get, you know, do whatever he wants. Right, and if God's going to reveal Himself there, He has to to at least risk being misunderstood as actually being that. But in that process, He'll let Himself be misunderstood. But then He'll start to kind of you know lay the breadcrumbs for deconstructing all of it. Mm. That's awesome, and that that opens up a, a quite a can of worms. So 
that that's really helpful. And I want to I want to wrap this episode. We're you know forty seven minutes in, and do a part two on this. But as you were saying that, Stephen, towards the end, the in particular the way that God, because He does show up and we can utilize, again, this incarnational analogy in a time and place to a people that have ears to hear certain things and and don't have ears to hear and experience to, to comprehend others. I think part of the critique to that would be, well, but so so when we look at these really hard passages in Scripture, when I say hard to, you know, it's hard to swallow some of the stuff in Judges, and, and this is what I want to talk about next episode. I want to talk a bit about uh, Greg Boyd, who I know is another author that that both of us mm-hmm. have read, um, and he talks a lot about this. I want to talk about some of these hard passages, maybe even open them up and 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 just look at them. Um, I think part of the critique to what you just said is that, well, and even in myself, I think, okay, but is God, like, just okay? So in other words, if he's allowing himself to be misunderstood, meanwhile, all these really horrible things are happening in the world, and is he just okay just hanging out and letting all that happen? Um, and does that really justify, it's like, well, you know, in the long run, we know that we see Jesus in all of this. And so it's all good because like for you and I in 2018, we can go back and just go, oh, amen. We see the other side of the coin and, and we're good. And like, I'm so glad that Jesus is, you know, but meanwhile, there were millennia of, of, or hundreds of of years of blood and, and, and pain, um, and Jesus, who apparently has a heart for the you know people in those positions, this idea that God sort of stood by, uh, stood by at best, or was involved and commanded it at worst, um, I think is a source of a lot of tension for people. It it is, it is a source of tension for me, um, <laughs> not us, it, but other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for no, those the, poor folks who haven't quite, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no um, but yeah, definitely. It, I I um I think. You know, I mean, the the question assumes a, a God that that has in his toolbox the option to step in and and to take it all away. Right. Um, now that framework of God uh, is informed by something that's informed by a culture. It's informed by the assumptions like that you make, or that you know, the sort of the the the, the things that, that that we bring to the to the table. Um, and you know, there are, there are ways of understanding God that have been helpful for me. And we can talk about this later. Yeah. Let's bring this in the next Um, episode, but keep going. You can, you can set it up. You know, there are ways of understanding God, um, differently that I think make more sense of this. If God, you know, if we, if God is most clearly seen in Christ is what we see in Christ, Consistent with like like the power on the cross, could Jesus have uh, you know? I mean, did Jesus you know take everything away or have all the power? I mean, you know, there's what is it? So that the talk about you know could I not call twelve thousand or you know, the 10, legion 000, of angels? Ten thousand yeah. angels, he could have called. Yeah, but there is you know the degree to which that that's a figure of speech and what he's doing there. That, that that's there's some interesting things to explore. Um, if God does not have in his toolbox the ability to manipulate and to coerce, um, he doesn't have like a big sort of red button that he can push and fix everything or like mm. to step in, uh, then he, I don't, what other options does he have except to, to meet us where we are and, and to sort of cloak himself, so to speak, in our cultural assumptions 
for the sake of ultimately kind of pulling off those layers, getting us to see that actually our assumption, wait, God doesn't want child sacrifices. Wait, God doesn't even care about the sacrificial system. Wait, like God, God's not violent. Wait a minute. Like God is most clearly seen on the cross. Um, That's, that's, there's a way of, of understanding God. Um, like that, that I think makes a lot more sense of those passages in the Bible. Now, the the, the trade-off, of course, is you, if God, I mean, God's not in control of everything in that framework. In that understanding. Um, right. Wow. So th- this is exciting. I'm, I'm excited about where we're going. To wrap on this, I, I would just say definitely encourage folks to check out Peter Enns and his material. It's super helpful. Um, we'd highly recommend incarnation, inspiration, incarnation, excuse me. We'll put some notes in, in, in the note section of the podcast. And, um, this is good, man. Maybe we could do a Bible next episode. It'll be kind of Bible part two. We'll talk about Greg Boyd. We can get into some of what you just talked about, um, and how to understand some of these really challenging passages and maybe explore some of the tensions a bit further. And then also some of the critiques of, of, of this framework. Um, and again, ultimately, moving towards formation and how ultimately it can it can show up in the church love it awesome thanks for tuning in everyone have a good one we'll uh, see you on the next one